Hello, welcome to Derp's Talk About Games. I'm your co-host, Mango. And I am your co-host, Buddy. And today we're going to talk a little bit about Spider-Man, No Way Home, and The Matrix 4. Before we do that, Buddy, watch the fuck's going on this podcast. On this podcast, we talk for 11 minutes about Spider-Man and The Matrix 4, but don't have any sound for it. So... We have to redo this whole. <laughs> we have to redo this whole thing. Manga, are you getting any deja vu right no, now? Yeah. <laughs> okay, so we're talking about Spider-Man, Spider-Man: No Way Home, and The Matrix Four, right? Two movies that have come out in this Christmas frame, right? Um, basically every year, there's there's always like a movie that wants to come out in Christmas and just destroy the box office. For the last couple of years, it's been Star Wars movies do this, right? Uh, Aquaman did this in 2018. Uh, you know, like Avatar comes out in this like frame. And both of these movies are vying for this spot with Spider-Man No Way Home clearly demolishing, like it's at a gazillion fucking records, made a quarter of a million dollars in a single weekend, right? Like, you know, th that movie is sort of like the juggernaut, right? Uh, Matrix 4 comes out uh, last week uh, and launches both on HBO Max and theaters at the same time, right? Um, and Mango and I saw this in an intriguing way because we didn't watch Spider-Man No Way Home up front. We watched The Matrix first, right? Yeah. So I had, a, I had a screening to go see The Matrix, and then immediately afterwards I was supposed to go see Spider-Man, but I just skipped that because I was so jazzed on The Matrix that I went, I saw The Matrix... And I was like, I, I want to go watch, watch this immediately. So I skipped Spider-Man. I went and I saw The Matrix again on HBO Max. And then I watched it a third time over the weekend also. Um, yeah. And and then I rescheduled, you know, Spider-Man for like two days later or something like that. Yeah, I right? think we both watched Spider-Man on Christmas Eve. Um, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, for, me, for my part, I watched The Matrix uh, in theaters, was not particularly jazzed on it, and then went back and watched pieces of it at home because like I couldn't understand what the Merovingian was saying in the theaters. So I went back and like turned on subtitles and uh, read through that. Um, and other, other kind of moments in that kind of vein where I wanted to see particularly what was happening was where I wasn't sure that the first time around. Um, so I'm going to call that like a one in like a quarter viewings maybe. Um, uh, but yeah. Um, so before we get into it, we're going to give our spoiler free opinions. Um, uh, uh, so, like, for me, I thought Spider-Man No Way Home was better. I enjoyed it a lot more. Um, I thought The Matrix 4's flaws were... I, so, I didn't hate The Matrix 4. I thought it was, like, somewhere in the B2B plus range. Um, something I have... Uh, and I, uh, you know, I forgot to say this in the, the first take, so, you know, it's, it's good that we get this back now. Um, is I don't think... I think it's the worst, worst of the four Matrix movies... Um, I think it is most similar to the first one, right? Like, I got I got a lot of TFA vibes, um, The Force Awakens vibes uh, from from this movie. Um, I don't think it's that's like a, a particularly strong one to one comparison, but that's that's kind of the immediate thing that jumped into my head. Um, uh, and I think it's got a lot of flaws that uh, uh, keep it from being particularly great. Uh, but we'll get into that after the. Oh God! Breaks. I see. The Force Awakens was also a, a sort of like milestone for me that I was comparing, but we'll talk about that in more detail yeah. and spoilers and stuff like that. Um, I love the matrix four, but I, I, I loved it more than it's good. Right? Like I think that this, it's a movie with problems. I do think it's better than revolutions. I think it's worse than reloaded in the first one. Um, 
But I also think that it, it has less on its mind. This is it, which is maybe the thing that is kind of like the most damning, right? Like I feel like the sweet spot for me for a lot of these sorts of movies is I always want a movie that is trying hard to be something like new and innovative and creative and thoughtful, right? And insightful and profound, all these things. Um, and even if it falls short, I tend to give those movies a lot of credit, right? As, as long as the movie has a lot of things on its mind and is trying to be deep, I am willing to kind of give it a lot of slack. The Matrix 4 is not that. It It is honestly probably the most kind of thematically and philosophically simple of all of the of all of the Matrix movies. Um, but at the same time, I also think that it does have a lot of character work and thematic work that I think is great and is a lot of fun. And also just the action was really great, um, which was probably one of the most surprising things. Uh, I just kind of... I think The Matrix 4 does a really interesting job at, just on a pure cinematic level, blending the old version of action that we kind of remember from, the, from like 1999, right, with the sort of updated action that we expect out of a post sort of John Wick era, right? Um, in a way that I thought was really compelling. And I was really on board for like a lot of these action scenes, um, um, especially I because... I'm going to directly disagree with that, but we'll, we'll oh, get okay. to that. Oh, okay. Well, it's, yeah. I mean, so, so like, that's kind of my – that's kind of my thing. Like, so I also sort of agree that it's, like, a B-plus, three-star movie, whatever. Um, pretty mediocre, all things considered. It doesn't really do anything special or crazily well. Uh, but, like, it's solid enough that I had a good time, and it hit me in a particularly good way such that I like it more than it's good. Spider-Man was the opposite for me. Spider-Man, I walked into – thinking that the movie was going to have too high a concept to sort of pull off, right? Like, you know, to me, the core Spider-Man story is something like there's a villain robbing a bank and Peter Parker has a math test in 20 minutes. Can he stop the villain from robbing the bank before he goes, you know, without missing his his quiz, his fucking pop quiz or whatever? That's like core Spider-Man drama to me. Spider-Man No Way Home is just like an insane huge step past that into incredibly high high concept multiverse stuff uh and i don't think that stuff was executed particularly well i don't think it was execu executed particularly well on a character plot or thematic level maybe it's kind of the best on its theming but like i also just like have a lot of quibbles with the way some of that stuff worked out so i just overall I did not like Spider-Man. I thought it was pretty bad, all things considered. Um, so the so my my core thing is like I think the Matrix was better than Spider-Man, but that's mostly because I don't think Spider-Man was a very good movie. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll we'll get to that, I'm sure. Um, so here's your spoiler warning: spoilers for every Matrix movie, spoiler for every Spider-Man movie, um, No Way Home, and Matrix Four Resurrections in particular. Um, we are going to start with the Matrix, uh, with Matrix Resurrections, um, but I expect to interweave both of the movies pretty pretty together because they do play off each other pretty well. Um, and the first thing I believe, buddy, said that they, they make for an interesting double feature. And I agree with that. Um, so uh, if you'd like to go see those movies before we spoil them, go do that now. Uh, spoilers, three, two, one. Um, and so we'll we'll start again with. Um, the beginning part of the, the of the Matrix Four, which is um, uh, what uh, friend of the cast Monik described, bless you, as a, bless you, um, as a meditation, bless you, excuse me, um, on uh, 
on essential on creating art in the uh, in the wake of having created something great before, right? Like um, Neo in those first thirty minutes is supposed to be like uh, an author insert of Lana Wachowski, you know, dealing with creating a sequel to a revolutionary piece of art that is The Matrix One. Um, in the movie, it's it's portrayed as a game. Um, which I thought was interesting. That is a real game award on his desk, by the way. Um, Jeff Keighley tweeted about like, oh, it was so hard to keep it under wraps, um, uh, which I thought was interesting. I thought I thought the whole framing was pretty interesting, but um, like I said, um, or um, I thought it was the scene was a little bit too up its own ass. Um, essentially, I thought that like it was a little bit too on the nose about like the the techno buzzwords, and I also thought that they kind of abandoned that part of the plot pretty quickly like once they got to the real plot and out of out of um the 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 fake world right like once they convince neo that he's not crazy um uh but yeah and you were in the middle of responding to that when luke told us that we didn't have any sound so yeah uh what were, what were um, okay about? so i do think that that stuff is there and i liked it a lot you know like when he literally said you know, honestly, just, like, the idea that The Matrix itself... I mean, it's not one-to-one, -one, right? Because The Matrix is a game in-universe. Um, it's not a movie. But it is flashing to moments from the previous movies. And it establishes that as far as, you know, I don't know, Neo, Thomas Anderson, whoever, right, is concerned, right? Um, the events of The Matrix are narratized, right? Um, and made into and made into kind of this in-universe fiction. And the core kind of conflict inside of that first act is whether or not Neo is willing to break free of that cycle, you know, between him and the analyst, where he thinks that his own memory is a fictional game. Right, and I think that this is maybe that the, the this is the part where the uh, the Matrix Resurrections is kind of at its deepest, right? Where it is talking about the construction of a new Matrix, one that is not built on, as the analyst says, like precision and facts, right? Because you know, um, for anybody who who didn't watch the movie but is in the spoiler section, the conceit of the Matrix Four is that the architect has been replaced by the analyst, who is a psychologist. Um, and he believes that he can make a better Matrix by appealing to people on a, like, you know, uh, like a facts don't care about your feeling level, right? Like, he doesn't care about precision. He cares about feeding people a fiction, a narrative that they can be hooked into, right? And this doesn't, and this crucially doesn't leave a hole for people to reject it in the way that the architect system did, right? Right. You know, he talks about how the sheeple, there, there are, there's nobody who breaks away from this system because it is so good at feeding people the fiction that they, that they, you know, like want to have. Um, you know, there's a quote in here where he talks about sort of like desire and fear, right? Where you are grasping at the thing you don't have, that desire, and you are scared of losing the thing that you do have, right? And how this has been the most effective version of the Matrix that they've ever that they've ever sort of like made or whatever, right? Um, and I think part of the conflict there is, you know, can can Neo break free of the idea that his own memories are a fiction because that's such a good that's such a good way to sort of like fuck with his head, right? Yeah, it's you like see pure that, gaslighting, right? Like Yeah, exactly, right? You see Morpheus and other members of like the real world break you know, break Neo out, right? But the but the analyst is able to get there quickly enough 
to convince him that it's all in his head, right? That it's just a manifestation of all this crazy, you know, whatever, right? Um, and I think that that's interesting. I don't know. I just, I, f I feel like that's interesting, and there's uh, so so that's, that's I don't know. There's something to it that I felt that felt uh, like clever, and I was and and kind of was what helped me get up on board, right? I don't really think that it had anything to do necessarily, you know, past that moment with sort of like the the interaction with Warner Brothers or whatever, right? Like obviously, I'm sure some fucking Warner Brothers person read this script and was like, oh ho ho, poking fun at ourselves. I'm sure the you know people will love that in the theater or whatever, right? Like I don't think that this is a tremendously subversive move from Lana Wachowski or whoever, you know, um, by putting that in the script. But it is, I don't know, it's cool. That's yeah. uh, there. There we go. So so interestingly, like I think so the. The reveal about, like, uh, the architect's plan comes, like, more like at the midway to the two-thirds point in the movie, right? Whereas this kind of, like, reflecting on building a piece of art that builds on something previous, I think is actually pretty well contingent this first half hour, right? Like, this is, like, this is the kind of in-matrix, like, this is a theme that's present only in the Matrix when Keanu believes the Matrix is real, if that makes sense, right? Like, like... Um, and maybe there's like threads of it elsewhere, but I don't think the thing you're talking like I think the thing you're talking about is very clever, clever kind of plot contrivance, and also maybe a deeper meditation on like what people want. But it's also not like this this very specific kind of like take on like you know what is it what does it mean to be an author trying to revisit a property that um you know like what was was super influential in the first place right like you like in a way we could talk about the the, the Force Awakens this way or in like the the Tom Holland Spider Man in light of you know, the Toby Spider-Man and Garfield Spider-Man. Yeah, um, so the, inter the, the interesting comparison for The Force Awakens to me, and I didn't make this connection at first. I made this connection, uh, like, in my, I guess, my second viewing or whatever, was how important I thought it was that they spend a lot of time showing Neo... Io and the and the the outside world and how he actually did make a pretty big difference, right? Sure. You know, one of the things that really pissed me off about the Force Awakens is it just because it resets the status quo so thoroughly, right? It makes the original trilogy feel meaningless, right? right. And there's a lot of time and effort put into the Matrix Four where they avoid that problem by having them go like, no, actually, we have updated our ways quite a lot, and you know, the the interaction between humans and machines has also changed quite a lot because of you know because of that, right? Um, and I think that that's reflected in, you know, everything, even down to like a character level, right? Where, you know, you have a new version of Morpheus who is an algorithmic Morpheus that is kind of merged with both Morpheus and Smith together. And he's entirely a program. He's entirely a good guy. I was I was afraid there was going to be some plot twist where, like, Morpheus was going to be a fucking bad guy or something. I was like, oh, no, Morpheus and Smith programming. Maybe he's going to go evil halfway through. There's some, some kind of thing. But, no, he's just – he's fighting alongside everybody else all the way to the end. And I think that that kind of stuff uh, really helped me – feel like this was a good sequel, you know, in just in terms of following that original trilogy that no, this is not a, you know, it is a plot retread in the way that, you know, uh, certain plot beats mirror other plot beats from the original film, but it is clear that this is happening after those films. And as a result of the actions taken in those films, nowhere in the matrix four, did I, did I feel like, man, it's a little bit lame that, you know, like Neo had to, break out of the matrix after breaking out of the matrix in the first one right because it just kind of i don't know all of that stuff felt like it was it was properly accounted for right um in inside of the narrative 
Yeah, I, so I agree with you, like, probably, like, 90% with that, right? Like, I say, like, I think there's a difference between, like, rhyming like poetry and just being a retread, right? And I think it's, like, 90% of that. There were a couple things that I thought were, like, um, you know, like, it, it felt, it felt kind of weird. Like, it felt like they had to contrive Neo being, like, losing a bunch of his powers to then give them to Trinity. Like, that felt more like a plot contrivance than something that felt, like, real and organic. Oh, um, see, you know, the interesting thing about that... Maybe I would agree with you if I didn't feel so fucking right about my previous stuff from earlier in the month where I said that Trinity has the power to choose the one or whatever. And and I don't know that, you know, the, the mechanics of this are not well explained in the movie. And I sort of think they don't need to be, right? Like, I, it, it is open for interpretation. But as far as I'm concerned, I was right the whole time, right? And it's kind of, it reminds me of, like, the Dalai Lama, right? Where the Dalai Lama and the alternate one, they choose one another in reincarnation, right? <clears throat> So, you know, uh, one of them is born and the other one selects another person, you know, to be the, the opposite. And then that person selects the next one, right? And I feel like that's the mechanic that is being explained with Trinity and Neo, where, like, sure, Neo was, quote-unquote, the one for the previous version of the Matrix. But the new, the one for this the version of the Matrix is Trinity, and, and Neo chooses Trinity in the same way that trinity chose neo in the first one i just all that stuff i thought that was great i was really happy about uh, all of that especially because it really um it really centered their relationship in a way that i thought was like authentic and oh sure. kind of on board for right like my my, my interpretation is it's more like it's always kind of been the two rather than the one like the one was like a misnomer in the first place sure um, but i also think that like like i i think i again you know, on a thematic level, I think it works. I think on kind of just like a raw kind of plot device level, it felt a little contrived. Um, uh, but, you know, that's... That's interesting. Yeah. I do have a lot of pro plot problems with this movie, but I don't think that that's one of... My, my plot problems are stuff like, um, you know, I explained uh, in one of our chats, like, I could walk you through the, the, the broad strokes of what the end of the movie is where this heist to get Trinity out. But I don't think I could walk you through point by point what the fucking plan was. And there's a lot of sort of leaps of logic in there that I was like, wait, what? Or like, what the, you know, so for instance, they t they're, they're talking about it like it's a heist movie. Morpheus with his crazy, cause he's a, he's balls or whatever, right? He sneaks into Trinity's pod through Neo's umbilical cord. Okay, you got me there. Then all of a sudden, Bugs is there, and I'm like, what? And then also the other flying robot is there, which I was like, okay, why? And then you needed Bugs to, to plug into Trinity's plug at the same time, and I was like, why does that need, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. So I was pretty on board with the immediate stakes and the action, and I could follow sort of, um, you know, the drama, right? But the actual mechanics of why certain decisions were being made in certain ways i'm completely lost right you know yeah no absolutely it it makes like i like like i think like so i think the point was that that like i think he, she was plugged into bugs to like to like bridge her until she got into the chair but like i don't think that really makes sense right like um also like why did or more it's it makes like i feel like it tried to explain itself like too much 
Like, explain itself enough that, like, you realize it doesn't make sense, right? Like, I feel like if they explained it less, you could just be like, okay, right? Like, um, maybe. I don't know. It was, it was, like, it, it was a mess. I think the whole movie was kind of a mess plot-wise. Um, like, like, I absolutely hate the final scene in the, in the movie. The, not the cat tricks, but the, um, uh, what were was they, it? Where they show up to the analyst's house? Yeah, yeah. And, like... He like she like punches him a bunch or whatever, and then like okay. they're like we're gonna make it rainbows, and they fly away. And it's like, what was what was what was any of that? What, what what was the point of any of that? Like, why is this still like online? Like, are they plugged in? Are they is it producing energy? If they're not, then at some point they're gonna shut down the Matrix Two, aren't they? Or are they just like did they plug themselves back in to like perpetuate the the Matrix Two? Like none of it none of it like makes sense if you think about it for like a little while. Well, I, I mean, I think that that does make sense in the sense of because uh, he talks about everybody else, right? You know, the 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 core foundation of of the analyst matrix is with Neo and Trinity, right? right. But you still have to account for all of these other people, and so right, but Neo and Trinity are both out. They were going to revert it to the Matrix One, but then he said they're not doing that because they think that they're going to come back. That oh, Neo- I see. Yeah, I guess that's kind of a plot hole, huh? Yeah. Right, and like. Is the implication that they actually came back because they can, like, run God mode inside of it? Like. That's true. Yeah, because Trinity, because they, they are both the one, you know, at right. the moment. Right. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I guess I sort of agree with you on the end. But I feel like, for me, most of that stuff is localized to the end. Everything else I was pretty on board for, right? You know, um, the first version where it's the modal and you find out that Neo is has been running this program with the combined Morpheus Smith code. So, right? so did, did he write, did he write Neo or the new Morpheus? Like, did yeah. he, is, is new Morpheus well, so, yeah, son? So, yeah. So he wrote, um, the, he combined Morpheus and Smith, right. Into a single program. And then he inserted that program inside the matrix into the modal. Right. Right. And that is what bugs and her crew found. They found that modal and they used that modal to break Morpheus out of it. And then Morpheus is the key to breaking Tom out of his, you know, out of his. Um, right. So, so I, uh, I followed that plot. Beat. What do they call that loop? Yeah. yeah. So I followed that plot beat. But that implies that like like a person is capable of just like writing an AI, like, like, right. Like creating a sentient being with their fingers in like, you know, mid 2010s level technology. Well, I actually think that to, to me that that wasn't an issue. Neo's the one, right? He can manipulate code of the matrix. Even on a subconscious level, he can manipulate the code of the matrix. Okay. I maybe buy that. I actually, to me, that was maybe the thing that got me on board the most. I loved that idea, right? That Neo on a subconscious level wants to break out that he writes the program to create the Morpheus to, to break him out, right? And then the interactions that he has, right? It is it is truly Morpheus who is the person that is able to get him out of it, right? He is like suffering this withdrawal and he's having a hard time figuring out what's real and what's fake or whatever because the analyst has done such a good job fucking with his head. And Morpheus is the one that zeroes in on it and says, you need to think about Trinity. That's that's what's real. That's your anchor here, right? And it's that moment that he's able to truly break free and, you know, finally kind of accept the unreality of the Matrix and, and break out of it or whatever. I loved all of that. I thought all of that was fucking awesome. Yeah, I thought, uh, I don't know. Some of it, I, I, I was mixed on it. I get what you're saying. Um, and I think some of it was, like, neat plotting. 
I just, you know, a lot of it just kind of, like, didn't, like, like, I think that, like, Morpheus being half Smith was literally just, like, a narrative excuse to have him dressed like an agent rather than, like, anything meaningful. Because, like, it does, I don't think it really affects or anything past kind of, like, that opening scene where he's an agent. Really? Um, I think that, I think that Mor- Morpheus's behavior is more Smith-like the like new Morpheus behavior is more Smith like than it is Morpheus like, right? The flair for this theatrical, that's something that you get out of Smith, right? Because Smith is kind of a ham. Uh, maybe. Maybe. I don't I don't think either Smith is very Smith like in this movie. Oh, really? Oh, see, okay. The other thing is that I loved Jonathan Groff. The moment where he picks up the gun and it's like he just like is having a fucking orgasm, right? He picks up the gun and then he yells Mr. Anderson while shooting the gun under the sprinklers, right? In the like which is metaphorically rain in this right. in this scenario. That is going to live rent free in my brain, I can tell for like the rest of my life. It is going to be like um you know in the last jedi where uh kylo ren points at the millennium falcon and he says you know blow that piece of junk out of the sky and he just says it in such a way that is forever lodged in my brain and the way that jonathan groff yells you know like mr anderson and he's shooting the gun exact same feeling right like i just loved that I, i also loved their fight at the bottom of the thing uh, where it was like Neo versus Smith, and Smith k- kicks the shit out of Neo, right? Um, after they come back into the Matrix because they're going to like start the process of getting to Trinity with the Merovingian is there, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. So I, I think I think that that fight scene in the in in the bathroom is is where he is his most Smith. Like and like I don't think he's bad. I just don't. I I I don't feel like he. Like, it is fine for him to be a different character with a different actor this time around. I just don't think it was... It particularly reminded me of Hugo Weaving Smith, um, either of them. But, you know, um, I'll agree with you that that moment was fun. Um, I just, you know... Okay, so this is, this is a question that I, I have for you, because I disagree with, with, again, friend of the cast, Monarch, on this. Did... Um, did... Uh, Smith always know he was he was in matrix two or does him picking up the gun break him out of it? I think he always pi- knew. Oh no. I, I, him picking up the gun breaks him out of it. Right. I think that's explicit when he's having a conversation with Neo, where he's talking about how the analyst uses Smith as like the ball and chain to keep Neo sort of contained. I, and the reason he is so fucking pissed at the analyst is because Smith understands that he has been made a dupe. Right. And then in the same way that the analyst has been fucking with Neo's head, he's been fucking with Smith's head. I think that's pretty core to the character drama. Right. Like, okay. see, I I thought I thought it was that he like he is furious because he has been like he has had to, like, you know, pretend this whole time because uh, the analyst otherwise has a hold on him. Right. Like he like, you know, I will not be leashed by him again type of deal. Right. Like I my, my impression was that, like, he knew what he was doing, but he was like forced to, like, play along because otherwise he was fucked. Um, Interesting. Yeah. And I, I, just, I just thought, like, you know, him picking up the gun was just, like, pure opportunity. It's, like, you know, pure, like, here's an opportunity, and I can't help myself even though it's going to have, rebound and have negative consequences on me if I shoot him. I'm going to do it because, like, it, it has appeared to me. You but, know, I think that's a valid interpretation. Like, I don't think that there's anything in the narrative that is – I think those are both – those are both technically supported by the text, yeah. right? Like, to me, it read as though in the same way that Neo was being broken out – 
um, by Morpheus and whatever. Um, it was. This was also. It had the side effect of breaking Smith out of the uh, out of his own loop, right? Um, and that that was. You know, like that was in the same way that it got Neo out, it also got Smith yeah. out, which ended up being pretty important, right? Because the only way that things resolve in the end is because Smith can fuck with the analyst when the animus uses or the analyst uses bullet time, right? Yeah, yeah. Theoretically, the very end of the the very end of the movie falls apart if the analyst just snaps on bullet time and can do whatever, right? But you need Smith there to um to, to shoot him, him yeah, right? Yeah. To fuck with him. Yeah. yeah, which I think was is technically an offstage thing that they like an off camera thing that they did right like in the in the world of the film I'm pretty sure it's a like it it's or I'm sorry in the in our world it's a plot twist but in the world of the film I'm pretty sure that that was a um that was like an alliance that was made off screen right it seemed as though everyone knew Smith was going to show up I, it's not like uh, oh, I think see. Neo and the rest of them were like oh. What uh, what is Smith doing here? Uh, right. See, I, I I definitely thought it was kind of like a you know he showed up because like he knew he had to like I didn't think it was expected by either of them. I I, I think that like a lot of it was just kind of like on the seat of their pants. Right? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess that's also true. Um, I just think that the way that he said our unlikely alliance that that implies to me that they did make some kind of you know accord. I guess. Yeah, uh, to to work together towards this end, which I always, which you know, I I enjoy I enjoy that I always enjoy, especially because the movie doesn't forgive or redeem Smith. It is just a matter of circumstance that they are working together, which is like right. my favorite way to do this sort of thing. Right? If you are going to have the hero and the and the villain team up, I want it because it is a temporary alliance of their own goals, and. That like that's why they are they are like willing to work together and not because you know like the villain is a good guy now even though that happens in all of the Fast and the Furious movies and I still love those movies by the way. Yeah, so <laughs> I, I actually I actually think that there's like an element of like Smith did nothing wrong that you could like pull out of this out of this narrative in that like you know Smith is just like you know in this movie Smith is just as trapped as Neo is um even if he's conscious of like regardless of whether he's conscious of it or not but I think that's you could also say that that's true of like the first trilogy right like Smith does not want to be like a bodyguard in the Matrix but he has to be because like that's what's forced upon him and like while like you know this is like what like standard kind of villain is a dark reflection of the protagonist thing right like even though he like he has like you know an understandable um, and, like, relatable goal, he goes about solving it in, like, a grotesque way, right? So, like, well, you know, and, th and that is how I think you get, like, you know, X did nothing wrong type villains, right? Where, like, you know, people who are, like, no, he's actually justified in doing what he did, even though well, you're good So, so I do want to split way. the hair that it is understandable, but I don't think it is relatable. I don't relate to Smith in the sense of Smith has a deep-seated contempt for humanity, and he thinks that humanity is a cancer that needs to be you know, like wiped out or whatever else, right? Like, I, I don't, I don't relate to that, but I do understand it, right? No, Which I, I, so, I think is an important distinction. Yeah, I, I Smith think does not strike me as someone like Killmonger or Thanos, who I do think are trying to be relatable villains, right? That appeal to me on sort of an emotional level. Uh, so I, I think the relatability aspect of Smith is not the. I mean, I think there are people who would be like, humanity sucks, right? But, like, I think that the sure. relatability aspect of Smith is supposed to be the, like, I am trapped here and I'm willing to do whatever the fuck I need to do to get out of here, right? Um, like, the, the, the kind of caged animal type of deal. Um, uh, 
but yes, I, I agree that there there is that 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 um, uh, what's it called that hair to split there, um, uh, but yes, uh, unwinding. Um, also, like just that, like like I thought that was a very cool moment. I didn't think the part where like Neo and Trinity like touch hands and everything explodes and like I don't I didn't think that that made any sense. Um, like I just don't like I just don't think that that mechanic makes any sense in universe because like they immediately hop on the same motorcycle and nothing like that happens. It's not like a thing that they can do at will or whatever. Um, I think I thought that was really powerful imagery when he was like you know and we we keep like you know we have to keep you like this far apart right like. Uh, weirdly, also kind of similar to um, what was it like, Hitch, um, or Hitchcock, the the oh, superhero yeah, movie with Will yeah, Smith. This, wow, God, yeah, yes, you're right. That is the plot point from the end of Hitchcock. That movie is a trip because yeah. <laughs> you find out they are literal gods, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, so I like that that interaction of them being, you know, like you close but not touching kind of thing. Ooh, sorry. Um, I think that that's a really uh, that's like a really compelling sort of construction for, you know, as the linchpin of the analyst new matrix and the construction of sort of like the concept of the one. I think that that's cool. I I, I sort of want to say I don't know. I, I wish I had a better answer of the one versus the two sort of thing. Like, I think there's a version of things where you could say that the reason that Neo has powers, and Smith also, by the way, has powers, is because they were so powerful in the previous version of the Matrix, right? But they are not at their full power because this is a new version of the Matrix. So, in a sense, some of Neo's cheat codes don't, don't work here. Um, and so, I feel like the interpretation that I have is that in... We're calling this Matrix 2.0. In the Matrix 2.0, Trinity is the one, but Neo has some sort of vestigial powers from the previous version. Same thing with Smith, right? Smith can't copy himself onto other people, but he can move between people, you know, as he demonstrates at the end of his thing or whatever. And I feel like that's maybe the interpretation I like I like the most, but maybe not. I don't know. Yeah, it's complicated. I, I, I don't think I buy that, like, Trinity is the one. I, I, think, I think it's kind of like... like I think it's built around, like, you know, the two of them in those, like, special pods, like, facing each other, right? Like, yeah. Um, and her being, like, like this is, I think, when, when the analyst is talking about having to take, bring her back to, like, make the Matrix 2 work to, like, make, like, to make, potentially, yes, to torture the two of them to get, like, maximum energy output out of them. Yeah. Right? Um, and I think, I think there's a, an important piece based upon, like, that, that human relationship piece, um, which, which makes sense, right? Like, this is, this is also his, his theory, right? Like, the desire and the fear thing is most strongly held when it's between two people. Yep. Um, yeah. yeah. And I think it's important to note that like that applies to every, you know, he doesn't say that is just Neo and Trinity. That is everyone in his matrix is, you know, sort of manipulated by these countervailing forces of desire and fear. It, it reminds me actually a lot of Westworld. Um, because one of the things they talk about is that people have, you know, people have all these handlers, these bots, right, that are inside of his new version of the Matrix. And I think that that implies that, you know, the construction of the new Matrix is one where you are not surrounded by other people, as in the Matrix 1.0 tended towards, right? You are surrounded mostly by bots who are who are kind of putting you in this in this feeling of sort of, you know, 
insecurity, this desire and fear thing, right? Like the insecurity and unease, um, but also like that you want something more. I It seemed to me that the analyst was saying that he was doing that to everyone and that Neo and Trinity just happened to be the most kind of potent example um, of the two of them, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, I don't know if I agree with that entirely. Just to think of it, thinking about it. Like, I, I feel like it's pretty pretty solidly built on the fact that there's something special about Neo and Trinity that is necessary to power this thing. Um, like, I think that's why they're in these special pods facing each other and why they're under, like, strict security. Um, so, I don't know. I, I, I also think this is part of the kind of, like, it doesn't make a ton of sense if you think about it yeah. too hard thing. No, I absolutely agree with you. I feel like the, that, that this stuff is open to interpretation. On one hand, that's cool. I sort of like that, right? Because I like that I can sort of you know, uh, create a theory about it and speculate about how these things work. And it is not necessarily like crystal clear in a solved equation. Um, but also I think that lack of clarity is bad and not great. Um, and that we should probably have a core understanding of the functionality of this matrix, right? If we were to, if we were to say that like this has good stuff in it, I mean, I do think that it has good stuff in it, but I just don't think that this particular aspect is, you know, amazing or, or spectacular. Yeah. I, I like, I, I think there's also moments where, where they, where it contradicts itself. Um, which is, I think the, the big problem, like, I think they needed to explain a less or explain more. Right, like there, there's like this like weird sweet, weird sour spot, I guess, where like there's enough there to kind of like latch onto, but not enough there that if you think it like that you don't start like running into like problems immediately, um, or pretty immediately. I don't know. Yeah. Um, what was other stuff? Um, do you think there's do you think this is set up for sequels? We we mentioned this a little bit. I I think no, but you said yes. Yeah. No. I I I think I think. Regardless of the fact, as, as Louis pointed out in a, in a previous discussion, that, like, the beginning it tries to, like, lampoon it, I think it's pretty clearly set up for uh, for more movies. Um, Interesting. Okay. I, um, I got the sense this was one and done, but I also think that maybe I wouldn't be surprised if they announced a sequel to The Matrix Resurrection, but I, I really much got the sense that this was one and done. Um, and I think that the, I, I, and part of it is how you view the Merovingian. I thought the Merovingian was sort of an inside joke in a way, right? Like that he is a laughable kind of character who is saying like, I'm franchise potential, I'm sequel bait or whatever, right? And that, that is the joke that he is when he isn't well, oh, and most, that most, doesn't matter. Most of his rant is like a boomer rant about Facebook. Like, yeah, that's exactly, it's, it's yeah, that's exactly weird. what I mean. Right, like we had conversations, right? Like, you know, which and I think that that stuff flavors at the very end when he says, "I'm not finished with you." I, you know, there'll be a spinoff or whatever. I think that, he, that is ultimately he a says. Joke. His, he says this is not over. Our our sequel franchise spinoff, yeah. um, <laughs> which was like th th that line. That line stuck with me pretty hard, um, uh, and like I I understand like I understand that interpretation, but like. I also kind of got like you know like a like especially from like the first part like it's like you know haha ha, uh, ha, ha, wouldn't it be terrible if we had more than one of these unless like that was like the, <laughs> the, the, the energy I got out of it um, 
Yeah. I think really the thing is is that I don't see an opening for a, like a solid new conflict in the way. Mm. Even with the original Matrix, right, there was a pretty clear conflict with the machines and Zion okay. that was set up if not executed on, right? Um, and the original Matrix, by the way, was not built to have a sequel, but like there was still, you know, uh, uh, there was still that potential kind of seeded through throughout the world right and you could see zion you could see the 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 prophecy come to you know some sort of fru you know fruition right um i don't i don't necessarily get the sense that there's a similar thing it seems like most things are pretty stable right coming coming out of uh coming out of this movie like granted there's not a huge denouement so it's not like you know we don't understand what happens to bugs and you know Niobe and stuff like that like when it comes to comes to IO but like I said before I feel like most of that stuff with IO is there for a little bit of kind of mid-game stakes right just kind of like a, a little bit of an obstacle to raise the stakes and, and make this stuff a little bit harder and to explain that yes Neo did save the world legitimately and change things forever and had a lot of agency in those first three movies right like I feel like you know the 15 minutes or so they spend in io is uh is mostly to that level right yeah so i i think this movie is is fairly overstuffed and i think that like they don't develop any of these things nearly enough like i think like i th feel like they wanted to do more with niobe as like a potential villain right as like someone who is more who is willing to sacrifice um sacrifice other people on the altar of like peace mm. um um but they all obviously didn't pull that that trigger too hard um, I also thought that IO pretty frankly sucked. Um, not really? On, oh, I actually quite liked IO. Not on like a conceptual level, just kind of on like a presentation level, right? You see like you see like two oh. angles of IO, and it feels like they're on like the same pole, right? That you feels like Neo's prison cell is like directly above that council thing, and like you just don't get good shots of the city that established. Like Zion feels like a city, right? You get enough sh establishing shots that like show you a bunch of it, and you really don't get a lot of that. Um, from from Io, you get like a couple indoor shots and like a couple outdoor shots, and I wanted more of like kind of like this is a city shots. Um, okay, yeah, I maybe agree. Just like on that raw aesthetic level, yeah. yeah. I I actually quite like the world building that they do in Io. Like sure. I love the idea of um, you know, honestly, the thing that really got me with that Force Awakens thing is the strawberry, right? You know how in the original Matrix they just have to eat this gruel and it looks right. disgusting, right? Whereas in the new version of the Matrix, right, you or I'm sorry, in the new version of IO as compared to Zion, you can now eat a strawberry, right? That 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 this is this kind of, you know, little metaphor of the progress that has been made. Um, that I thought was just cute and great and I was just like, good good job. That that felt that felt good to see. Yep, no, I I agree. I agree. The world building is pretty good. I just, you know, I I think the like the set and setting. I think the set and setting, in a lot of ways, like uh, isn't isn't great in this movie. I I would like you know we were you were talking about the fight scene earlier, um, like fight scenes. I felt like a lot of it was clearly kind of like, well, we couldn't get too close to each other due to COVID, so we did like weird like half fights and like you know maybe Keanu's showing his like it feels weird because like Keanu's obviously done John Wick and he doesn't have a lot of problem moving in those, but like. He does, it doesn't the fights don't all feel super great and like you know he relies a lot on like weird force push powers which like seem like they're very kind of like on the one hand they're they're either like old man powers or also like a covid i don't have to actually get near you powers um which i didn't think were great um 
Uh, that's interesting. I don't know. I liked the I liked that aspect of it because you know when he first start, he isn't using any of that stuff then he first sort of discovers that power when he's 1v1ing with morpheus right then he develops it with smith when they're fighting under the under the warehouse right where smith is kicking his ass and he needs to sort of like tap into this and is using it to keep smith at bay right even though he still loses that fight which is one of my favorite details that 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 in the same way that Smith definitively kicks in Neo's ass in the um, the first and third Matrixes, he also kicks in Neo's ass in the fourth one, right? When they when they sort of like square off or whatever, and then finally in the motorcycle scene, right when he is with Trinity, it, he, it these powers are sort of fully realized, and he is using them to you know like force push the cars and all this stuff. And there's the moment you know he pushes the car, it becomes a ramp. I love that stuff. I was a huge sucker for that stuff. Though I think that the best fight was uh smith and neo under the warehouse like that was when it was like the good yeah shit. I, I will agree that's probably the best one but i think i mostly agree with lou here that like keanu is stiff like he has bad knees that, that felt about right <laughs> yeah. keanu is stiff that he has bad knees okay maybe um yeah um i also thought that like the kind of like um, instead of the agents, the swarm mode felt like very, very weirdly like, and the zombies are popular with the kids now. Um, I don't know. It felt like it felt weird. Really? It, I, it just didn't feel like very matrixy to me. But I, I also don't, I wasn't too 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 put off by it. But I just felt like not the movie that like not the thing that I was used to seeing out of the Matrix. Uh, uh, I think fun, I ultimately but... actually quite liked Swarm Mode and, and like the way that the bots, especially because it was used in a creative way. The thing that really sold me on Swarm Mode was the swar was the bots jumping out of the buildings and like kamikazeing onto the ground where they're on the motorcycle. That's when I was like, oh, this is actually quite clever, you know. Like, and I'm I'm sort of I'm sort of like on board with it in a different, um, you know, like in a different way or on a different level, I guess I would say. Um, the thing I liked about it was that the agents are outmoded. Ver like I, part of part of what makes the movie work as a sequel for me is that the analyst feels like a true kind of like like uh, escalation of the world, right? Where sure. you know the humans have gotten better at this stuff, and the machines have developed a new version of the Matrix that is, you know, that, that is better at fighting them right you know one of the small details that i quite liked is that they mentioned landmarks right they mentioned tokyo and they're pretty clearly in san francisco right yeah which is to say that the matrix 2.0 is not a generic mega city right it is a you know a facsimile a simulation of the real world in its entirety which i think is very neat and i was and i was uh happy to see Right. Um, and so sword mode just kind of falls into that whole package to me. Right. Where it didn't feel like where it felt like, you know, the Matrix 2.0 was an escalation of the sort of threat and was a difficult or and the analyst in particular was a more difficult, you know, villain to beat, if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, OK. I, 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 I buy that, I guess. Yeah, Lou says in the chat, I was all for sword mode. Bot bots make way more sense than rewriting people as agents. That's expeditions and easier to overwhelm threats. Yeah, I think I I think I get that. I also just love the one moment where you see like the woman in her bed in San Francisco and like her husband is a bot and he and he kamikazes out the way. You didn't have to include that tiny little bit of like character work to show that there is a normal human who has been, you know, in a romantic relationship with a bot. Um, but I just that's 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 good stuff. Good little detail. 
Yeah, yeah. No. Um, anyway, we've spent about forty-five minutes on the well, Matrix. Um, real, real, real quick, just on that point, I, I did want to say that, like the, you know, agents have stormtrooper firing stuff got turned up to eleven in this movie in a way that was like really bad. Like, like uh, Bugs is like right in front of an agent in like the kind of like modal adjustment version of like the original movie yep. fight scene, and it's just like that is like like the first movie. It is believable that you would miss a shot on somebody running across a, a, a roof, like, ahead of you, right? It's not believable that someone three feet in front of you would shoot at their feet instead of, like, at their, at their fucking center of gravity or whatever, right? Like, it was bad. It was bad. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I liked a lot of that stuff with Bugs in general, right? Like, the moment where Bugs is jumping over the cop car or manipulating the gravity in the hallway in the modal um, in order to gun, dodge gunfire. Like, I like that stuff conceptually, but I... I once again agree. Yeah, the, the, the stormtrooper firing squad is very stupid and bad, and is part and parcel with all of the, you know, with all of the Matrix movies at this point. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, like you said, we spent about forty-five minutes on this. Let's, let's shift focus to uh, the Spider-Man, since uh, since we didn't actually end up intertwining them as much as I thought we would. But Spider-Man. What did you spider? What do you want Spider talk about? So okay. So my core thing with Spider-Man. So okay. So. Part of this, I want to say, is expectations, right? Something that I said before we even saw the movie is I said that I feel like this is too high concept for Spider-Man. I had that opinion just based off of the trailers that I was watching. I was like, this whole thing he is using... First of all, this is... Re this is uh, adapting a story called One More Day, which is a famously, famously awful Spider-Man story, which I, I just... I hate, I hate that. I hate that story. I think that story is really bad. Um, and it's funny because, okay, a small detail in the credits, because obviously you watch the whole credits because there's the post-credits scene or whatever. There's a small detail in the credits where they give a special thanks to J. Michael Straczynski, who is the writer for Spider-Man One More Day, right? Um, he hated that comic so much. He was ordered to write this comic, basically, right? And he hated that comic so much that he quit the series entirely afterwards, right? Um, and he actually asked to have his name taken off of it because he didn't he didn't want to be associated with it. Um, and so that that already like I was pretty primed not to like this one. And I feel like part of that reaction that I'm having, this like negative reaction, is because I'm walking into it with pretty negative, you know, expectations um about, you know, whether or not the movie can kind of pull this stuff off. I don't think it pulled this stuff off. I think that there's a lot of leaps in especially kind of thematic logic that are truly bonkers and that I also truly hated and felt inauthentic to both spider-man the this version of the character and the spider-man the the greater cultural concept that i enjoy and want to watch movies about um such that i just fucking hated this i just really did not like this one <laughs> yeah i mean it, it doesn't have like the, the the one you're talking about is the one where like he like makes a deal with the devil right to like save aunt may yeah so what happens is in the civil war storyline spider-man is part of tony he he has been taken under tony stark's wing and he is part of tony stark's um initiative to have superheroes reveal their name to the public he calls a big press release spider-man takes off his mask and he says hey my name is peter parker i've been spider-man since i was 15 years old right halfway through the civil war storyline though 
Um, Tony Stark uses supervillains. They they put a mind control chip. It's like Suicide Squad, but it's called the Thunderbolts in Marvel, um, where he's using supervillains to hunt down heroes. And Peter is so furious with Tony that he rejects Tony and he and he swaps sides and he becomes a part of Captain America's you know like Avengers you know underground team or whatever. Um, after that, he you know he's a fugitive or whatever, and there's a bunch of stories actually where he goes back to the black costume. Um, he puts away the the red and blue Spider-Man costume, and he's back in the black. It doesn't include the Venom suit, but just the the black and white Spider Spider-Man costume. Um, because people are threatening Mary Jane and uh, Aunt May, and he eventually resolves that problem by fucking with Kingpin and basically forcing Kingpin to keep like the goons in check or whatever um there's so there's a bunch of these storylines and then eventually it, this all culminates in a story called one more day where spider-man makes a deal with the devil he makes a deal with mephisto um to erase the world's memory that spider-man is peter parker in order to save aunt may's life right um but the thing that he has to give up for it is his marriage to mary jane so he's now single and him and Mary Jane broke up at some point in the past. It is incredibly bad and super dumb. Um, and I do think that the stuff that came after is good. Spider-Man Brand New Day is like the the headline for the status quo that comes out of the One More Day storyline. And that stuff is actually pretty good. Uh, but the storyline itself is just like, you know, it is a square peg in a round hole. And everything about it is so weird and out of character. And I hate it all. And it's all so bad. Uh, so... Yeah. And also, you know, I've talked before on the podcast how J. Michael Straczynski is one of my favorite comic book writers. And the stuff that happened before that was the result of like a 10 or 15 year J. Michael Straczynski run, right? Like this guy was like, he he was the, the, the Spider-Man writer for all of this time. So also having that run be the place where he goes, fuck you, I'm out, is like part of the, part of the equation, I guess. All right. Fair enough. Um, yeah, I like, do, by the way, think that this movie is probably better than One More Day, but it's just like, man, I it really, it, it, on, on an ethical level, it comes down to, one, I don't think, so it, it it's like, a, it's a bunch of different things. Is the stuff with Aunt May, where Aunt May dies, supposed to suggest that Peter didn't get a moment with Uncle Ben because they, they never showed that, right? But it was implied that his Uncle Ben died off screen and then he learned with great power comes great responsibility out of that. It's never said outright, but it's implied, right? But I felt like this was the implication now was the opposite, which was he never learned that with great power comes great responsibility. And only as Aunt May dies years into his career as Spider-Man that he learns the core, like, ethical lesson of spider I'm like... What the fuck? Like that to me is the biggest what the fuck like betrayal really? I, of the character I, I uh, in this movie and on screen. Do you, well, do you know? I, does that make I, sense? I, I, I your your like your sentences make sense, but I don't see why that's a big deal. Like I don't see why it's a big like because like Spider Man like like we do not see Spider Man operate as Spider Man independent of either Tony Stark or like. You know, or, or except for like here in the last movie, right? Like, which is like him looking, like him not having his own moral compass. This is why he's so easily seduced by like Mysterio, right? Like, he's just kind of, he is like, you know, he he hands off his powers, 
his Stark powers to Mysterio because he thinks that like he doesn't want the resp- it's not his problem, right? Like he doesn't want to. He wants to be a kid, right? That's been like a running thing, and this is sure. Him, I think, fully coming. And I do. Through. And by the way, I like Spider-Man: Far From Home quite a lot, right? And I and I think that that movie does that conflict well. But the part of that that made sense to me is an understanding that Uncle Ben and all of the great power, great responsibility stuff happened off screen, right? That that happened before we ever met this version of, of Tom Holland's Spider-Man, right? And that all the stuff that happened with Mysterio is just a, you know, it's a lapse, right? He is fundamentally a character that wants to save people, but he is also this character that wants to, you know, have like a normal teenage um, childhood and Mysterio is able to, manipulate him effectively into giving up this crazy stark power whatever bullshit whatever right um i just think it really undoes and unravels the entirety of the character to say that he has been adventuring as spider-man for years without that fun like the the reason that he gets that lesson is because he becomes spider-man to make money Right, the the, the sp- sp- he becomes well, he Spider-Man become to Spider-Man to make money. That's just like what what hap- what he does with it, right? Like he doesn't, he doesn't intentionally get bit to make money. This is no, no, no yeah, yeah, sure, sure, sure. But he develops the Spider-Man persona to go beat Bonesaw the wrestler, right, and make a bunch of money in this amateur wrestling league, right? And that it is only when the you know the thief that robs the wrestling league goes home and kills Uncle Ben that he then realizes. That he then realizes, oh, I should have been acting with more responsibility than this. So it's just like, I don't know, man. It's like, <sighs> I mean, I, I don't, I do not think that it is so core to like. I don't think that like, you know, Spider-Man stops being a bad person because like his uncle tells him something once. Like I think that I think I think that's just kind of like a, a, a incredible reduction of the character, right? Like I think the ultimately Peter Parker is supposed to be like a good kid that occasionally like goofs off and, like, wants to, like, ignore his responsibilities. But I think that's been true for this Spider-Man for, you know, the the, the, the previous Spider-Man movies and, like, all of his appearances, right? Like, he's he's being pushed along by Stark. He's being pushed along by, like, the, the other factors at play. Um, and if this is the – like, this is the movie where he, like, really kind of comes into his own, right? Because in the first movie, he's, he's, uh, he's, a, he's a Stark under, understudy. And in the second movie, he's, uh, he's a Mysterio understudy, right? Like – I think this is where he like becomes the spider. He truly becomes the Spider-Man. So I maybe agree with that in terms of like the status quo at the end of the movie, which is exactly what I want, right? Peter Parker alone. He has a shitty apartment in New York City, right? He's graduated high school or whatever, and is about to embark on what like. I mean, one of the things that I think is funny about these movies is that they are so high school focused because that's actually a remarkably short period of the Spider-Man comics, all told. He he spends most of his time in, like, college and as an adult, right? Um, and not actually all that much time as a high schooler. But that is so part of the persona of Spider-Man that it kind of, like, gets carried over, sort of. Um, so I guess I do agree with you in terms of the status quo that the movie ends on. That feels very authentically Spider-Man. But I don't know. I just, like... I really, really, really balk at a version of Spider-Man where he does not learn the great power, great responsibility lesson up front. I think maybe Uh, the uh, best uh, argument someone could convince me is that that lesson did get taught to him off screen and that the stuff with Aunt May is like a reminder. But even then, I'm just like, it is so unclean, right? The, The version of events 
because Spider-Man was fundamentally doing the thing that Aunt May approved of, right, by bringing these people and trying to cure them, which I think is its own ethical conundrum that I'm just like, first of all, I don't. that's also... I hate it. And it's also kind of ethically unsupported, right? Like the logic of I can't just send these people back to their universe to die or whatever. It's like, man, dude, who? it's like this interdimensional trolley problem is like breaking my brain. What the fuck? Right. Um, So so a a couple of things just before you get any further. Right. Okay. I, I think I think Arahe in the chat brings up an interesting point. Batman's parents die ten years after he becomes <laughs> Batman, but I think I think this is actually serves to highlight why I don't think it's as big a deal, right? Like Batman becomes the Batman because the trauma of him, of of his parents dying, like like he needs to like work through that grief essentially, and like he becomes Batman and kind of like burrows it and like uses it as like you know he's got he's got mental problems, right? Like yeah, that's kind sure. Of like, he sublimates his grief to become the Batman. But I think yeah. that Sp- Spider-Man does the exact same thing. He but sublimates his Spider- creep over J- Uncle Ben to become Spider-Man. See, I, I, I don't think that that's strictly necessary or strictly true, right? Like, Spider-Man is not like, you know, like, vengeance, like the Dark Knight. Spider-Man is a goofball, right? And, like, I, you know, frankly, I think it, that, like... I, I, I don't think he has to be vengeance or the Dark Knight. But the thing that motivates him to become a hero, right is the the lesson that he learns that he could have stopped his uncle from dying and he failed to do so because he didn't think it was his responsibility to act. Right? Sure, but those Spider-Men don't live in a universe with other superheroes, right? Like which is I think I think a big part of this universe, right? Like oh man. <laughs> I mean so he's inspired to act because he watches Iron Man and Captain America. I, I, that, it, it, that's like saying Batman is inspired to become Batman because he sees Superman on TV. Uh, what? It's a completely different character at that point. This is what's so, so frustrating. So, so I will agree that that applies to Batman, but I think that's very Spider-Man, right? Like an extended, like an, an extended arc where Spider-Man is only doing it because like he thinks like it's like fun or like you know like because he wants to be a hero instead of because he wants to do the right thing. I think is perfectly consistent with this arc. Right, like Spider-Man, like Spider-Man continuously wants to put off being a superhero, right? Like, and he just kind of does it because, like, it seems neat, it seems cool, right? Like, you know, it's a thing that like the other the other superheroes push him to do, right? But he otherwise probably wouldn't do it, at least not to this 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 effect, right? Unless pushed, right? And this is the part where he truly comes into his own as like you know, it's, it's I don't know, it's coming of age maybe is, is the right way to put it because like this is where he he goes from being like a high school student to like a, a real adult. Um, I feel like if I s- sat down and like wrote a, wrote a, like you know collected thoughts about this, I, I'd say it a little bit cleaner. Um, I mean, I, I think the dirtiness of it is part of my problem, right? Because it's not even just that he is learning this Aunt May lesson in the third movie of a trilogy of movies where he has appeared in one, two, three, four, five of them, right? You know, like he has been a superhero for five fucking movies and he's learning in this one, the great power, great responsibility lesson. But even the lesson itself, I think is really unclean, right? Because of how it's interacting with sure. this weird I, stuff. It's like, like with Uncle Ben, it's so straightforward, right? right. No, Spider-Man I'll, I'll watches a thief steal a bunch of money and then that, and doesn't interact with, and just lets him run by. And then- he goes home and finds out that that thief killed his uncle, right? And he realizes, I should have done something. I could have stopped this, and I didn't. And I wish I had, right? In Spider-Man No Way Home, 
He, no, I, I, I agree he, with you. It's dirty, right? Like if, if he, if, it's breaking. No, how do I even explain that? Right? Like I, there's no one sentence explanation where you can explain. Well, well, the kind of counterpoint is like if he had ignored his aunt and just like made it not his problem, his aunt would be alive, right? Like, <laughs> That's even worse, right? And the thing is, is that I kind of think it's not his problem. I don't know. I was incredibly unsold. Like the movie did not seem to justify yeah, the no, ethics at all. Where and where Doctor Strange was like. It is not my problem. I'm sorry. It's not my problem that these guys came from another universe, and it is dangerous for them to be in this universe, right? And I maybe I send them home and they die, but fuck, I can't control. You know, I, sure, I can't control that. I have to save the entirety of my own universe, right? Like, that, <laughs> I don't even know. And then it's like it's, and but he's right to second guess. Doctor Strange and Doctor Strange is like, you were right, kiddo. Fucking, we should have magically cured them of their superpowers. And and like, and this is the other thing: all of the villains are evil because of their fucking superpowers, not because of like their core. Like the. Oh. I, to, to be fair, is, they they they, they picked me up. like, I don't. Know, I feel like they, like Otto and Green Goblin they picked specifically because that's pretty clearly true about them. Right. Okay. And and Sandman, Sandman isn't even a villain. He's just like trying to get home to his daughter. Right. Like he 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 he's like in league with with uh, um, with with Strange, um, uh, or who should be in league with Strange. Um, yeah. And then and then like I don't know, they just like didn't do enough with like Crocodile Man and like with the Garfield villains to like make me convinced that like the, those were anything. But I, I've also have not like. Watched those movies. Yeah, I mean, I bar I bulk at the Norman Osborn one. Norman Osborn, without his powers, is still a huge egomaniacal piece of shit, right? Like, I think the I feel like this is like even a misreading of the interactions he has in the first Spider-Man movie with the mask, because the mask certainly gives voice to this stuff and gives him kind of the power to actualize his shitty sociopathic side, right? But I don't think that the shitty sociopathic side comes from the power. It, it is like, if anything, it is um, it's almost like a metaphor, right? For the, he now has the, the ability to do the things he always wanted to do, right? He wants to have control of Oscorp in, spider, in the 2003 Spider-Man, Right, and he loses control of Oscorp, and it is the Green Goblin who murders all of the people who are initiating this hostile takeover of his company. Right, but both sides of Norman want to do this. Right, one of them it just has the capability to commit murder on a fucking glider with pumpkin bombs, basically. Right, um, so I kind of just bulk at the raw characterization of oh, there's a good boy Norman inside of, and there's there's bad bo bad boy Norman. It's like no, that, I mean. Norman is is a villain. Both sides of Norman are a village. Just one of them has the 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 sort of the power and force of will to act, and the other doesn't. Right. Um, uh, the the auto one I think is fair, and and is probably the best thing in the movie. I mean, obviously, Otto Octave Spider Man Two, the golden standard of like superhero movies. I love that movie. Alfred Molina is amazing, and he's amazing in this. And Otto works front to back in this. Yo, and maybe the only version of these that I'm sold on is Otto, because all you have to do is put the chip in and you 
you can tell he's a really tragic character. So, you know, like, fair enough. I kind of want to give it a pass, but I also am mad that it does this the Force Awakens thing of undoing the previous movie, right? Like, part of the drama of Spider-Man 2 is that this unfortunate accident happened and... Otto is driven by, like, you know, the, the the will of his tentacles and his inability to keep all of this stuff straight to commit a bunch of crimes and do stuff. But he does eventually, like, summon the willpower to save New York from his own fusion reactor imploding and destroying Manhattan or whatever, right? And it just feels fucking cheap to me that, oh, in five minutes I can create a magic wonder bot that, that solves your problem. It's nice. It works in the context of the movie, but I hate what it does to the other movie and it really pisses me off. And then they do it to all the other characters too, which pisses me off more in a high school fucking biology lab, right? Peter Parker can undo Oz, like the, the Oscorp super soldier serum right in one night in a high school biology lab i hate, I hate it i hate it so much i don't know that didn't pierce my suspension of disbelief but yeah you know, i think I, part of this is also a mindset thing i think there's another version of this movie where i'm on board with it and i'm with it you know like it's kind of the we've talked before about how like when one thing breaks for you in the movie yeah it can spiral out into all these other things. It's kind of where I'm at, right? I think there's a version where someone could say, oh, this is actually heartwarming. It is giving characters like Otto Octavius the the good ending that he couldn't have, right? And that that feels good, right? That, that you know, this tragic, we could avert this tragedy and give everybody the, the good ending, right? And maybe if I was more on board with the rest of this story, I would be happy to say that, but... I'm not, and so I'm just mad about this whole fucking thing. <laughs> yeah, no, I, and, and to be fair, there are there are like little plot things. Um, these are things that I, I'm cribbing off of your movie sucks, which is basically like, um, but I, you know, I thought of them too. Is like you know, Doctor Strange didn't think to explain the parameters of the spell to Tom Holland before he starts casting the spell, um, and then at the end, where the world's about to end because it's coming in, he's like, "Are you sure?" Right? Like, you know, it's you know, little things. Yeah, not like to that. mention why specifically is it that Tom Holland realizes that all Dr. Strange has to do is cast a spell that erases him from everyone's mind or whatever. And why does that undo? That seems completely unrelated to the first version of the spell, like breaking through or whatever. So, so it's, 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 it's something that I didn't realize is it's the kind of the inverse spell. Um, like it's not that everyone forgets that, Peter Parker is Spider-Man. It's everybody forgets who Peter Parker is, right? Like entirely. This is this is this okay. is why he can't. This is why he can't accept um, his friends from it, because they. It's not like like they would forget that he was Spider-Man, right? Like in, in the original version of the spell, right? But they wouldn't forget that he was Peter Parker. Everybody forgets who Peter Parker is. The only person that like really need, would need to be around for that to like be a problem would be May. Um, so everybody knows that Spider-Man exists. You just don't know that Peter Parker is a person. Okay, I guess. Which, yeah, I, I don't think. Yeah, it's the okay. Most, so it's like it's like multiply like multiplying by your inverse thing it makes one, right? I think so, right? Is because if no, if no one knows. If no one knows, so the, the the thing that causes the problem is when he says basically everyone who knows that Spider Man is Peter Parker, right? Which is what starts bringing people in from the alternate realities, right? If no one knows who Peter okay. Parker is, there's no one. There's you know. no one to bring in. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I guess I get it now. 
that makes sense. God, yeah. I hate this so much. I mean, even just the conceit in general. I was actually sort of willing to buy it at first. I was the this was before the movie like lost me, where it's like, oh yeah, you know, like Doctor Strange and Peter Parker fought together in space. They fought against Thanos. You can understand this guy would have a little bit of a soft spot and would be willing to cast a big spell. Uh, obviously, Doctor Strange himself is I don't want to say like arrogant, but it, you know he is confident. Right. And that's part of his thing. Right. Like he's really interested in pushing these things to the limits and being the very best that there ever was. And so he's willing to make this incredibly complicated spell or whatever. But the the more that concept kind of got tested and went on from there, the less I bought that like Doctor Strange would be OK with this and wouldn't just pull the plug entirely and go, you know what? I'm sorry. I wanted to help, but I can't. This you're being too demanding. Go fucking complain to the admissions lady. God damn it. Why the fuck are you asking me to like rewrite reality for you? Right? Like so even just at that point, like I was kind of I was kind of out of it. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Especially because and, and this is weird because this is a difference between Doctor Strange's um uh characterization in the comics versus the movies in the comics he would never do anything like this right like the fundamental thing about dr strange is that he is an incredibly responsible person and most of the time he turns people down when they come to him and say please fix this with magic he goes that i can't do that for you right you have to accept the consequences of your actions which are x y and z right um or it comes at some great cost right like there's um you know, there's a story, there's a Thor story, which was written by J. Michael Straczynski, where Thor kills his own grandfather, Bor, who is Odin's dad, right? Um, Bor gets brought into Midgard and it's like going ham in Manhattan. And Thor has to kill his grandfather um, in order to in order to stop him, basically, right? Um, and in that process, his hammer gets broken, but like, like shattered, Right, where both the magic itself and the it is not it is not that the magic is still in there. It is that um, like Mjolnir, Mjolnir loses its magic entirely because Thor did this this like unspeakable thing, which was like be a kinslayer essentially. Right, and Thor goes to Doctor Strange, and Doctor Strange they he does repair the hammer for Thor, but he makes it it's like a it's like a huge deal where Thor has to imbue himself into the hammer, and if the hammer ever breaks again, Thor dies. Right, he is now in he is now like fundamentally linked on like a like a soul tether kind of level to the hammer or whatever. That's the kind of Doctor Strange that gets that's in the comics, right, where he is. The person imparting that. In fact, I actually believe that in the One More Day storyline, Peter Parker goes to Doctor Strange to ask him to do this. And Doctor Strange says, no, that'd be tremendously irresponsible of me. So, like, you know, like, in the comic, that's worse than this movie, right? He makes the decision. I, I think that the Doctor Strange in the movies is a little bit of a different character than that, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and, it's, and it is more supported, but... Ah, God, this whole thing. Huge problems. I do think it's funny that Wong is the Sorcerer Supreme, though. Yeah, I hate that, actually, because there are... Who is and is not the Sorcerer Supreme is a really interesting question. And it should be Baron Mordo, who is the Sorcerer Supreme, which I'm I'm guessing is going to get resolved. You know, we know there's a Dark Strange 2 coming, and Mordo is in that, right? And is a... um, And is, like, a bad guy in that or whatever. But I thought... I was like... I I thought that was going to be it. I was like... As soon as they said Wong was the Sorcerer Supreme, I was like, fucking really? It's not Mordo? 
I mean, the other version, by the way, is that it's Doctor Doom, which is my favorite version, because Doctor Doom is traditionally the second place of like Sorcerer Supreme in the Marvel Cinematic U or in the Marvel Universe. But that has questions on how they're doing Fantastic Four and Marvel stuff. So, what, are you gonna do? what is what is the uh, what is the mechanism for determining the Sorcerer Supreme? Uh, the Eye of Agamotto. So, um, if you remember the the medallion that he wears, yeah. which has the time thing, that's called the Eye of Agamotto, and the Eye right. of Ag Agamotto will kind of like a Green Lantern ring, sort of seek out a new Sorcerer Supreme, right? Um, but there's this thing where the second place. So every time a new Sorcerer Supreme is picked, the second place gets to ask a favor of the first place, if that makes sense. And which makes drama because what happens is Doctor Doom asks Doctor Strange to do something bad. And Doctor Strange has to do the thing for the greatest supervillain in Marvel Comics, right? Um, which has never really been that bad. It's like, you know, like Doctor St I think Doctor Doom asks Doctor Strange to get his wife. No, not, not his wife. His mom um, to get his mother out of hell. Um, or something like that. It's like that kind of thing. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, wait, how often does this favor refresh? Just once? Uh, I don't know. It's it's a couple of times, definitely. Um, because it's like been a mechanic that has triggered more than once. Um, this is a weird mechanic. I, I, I'm going to be honest. Like, this does not sound like a particularly, like, you know... It sounds like a bullshit mechanic in the first place. Okay, so uh, the thing I am referencing um, came out in 1989. It is called uh, Doctor Strange and Doctor Doom, Triumph and Torment. It's actually, wow, I didn't know this. It was drawn by Mike Mignola, who is the, um, um, the, Hellboy, the guy. Hellboy guy. Yeah. Um, but, uh, God, where's the, where's like the plot synopsis? Uh Doctor Doom and Doctor Strange enter Mephisto's realm in an all-out effort to free the soul of Doctor Doom's mother. Okay, but that doesn't say... Man. I'm trying to see... I want to see this, like, special... I want to see this, like, special thing. Okay, it's actually every year. Here's what it is. Um, oh, no, I'm sorry. This is different. Fuck. Okay. God damn. Sorry, I did not mean to derail this into Mango Asks Buddy Weird Comic Store questions. Yeah, okay, so every year on Midsummer's Eve, Victor Von Doom clashes with the forces of evil in a vain attempt to free his mother's soul from hell. Only when Dr. Stephen Strange is convinced to join the fight does the outcome have any hope of changing. Um, but that doesn't, uh, that doesn't explain anything about the deal. Whatever. You know what? Whatever. Um, so, yeah. I don't know. I guess. I don't know. For reasons. Yeah, honestly, the thing that depressed me most about this is that um, I was sort of holding out a certain amount of hope because Spider-Man No Way Home was written by a guy named Chris McKenna, who is a writer that I love quite a lot. Um, you you would know him from Community and right. from uh, American Dad. He was like one of the writers of those two shows uh, for a long time and then eventually would kind of break away into... Um, uh, like film and TV by going for um, uh, where because he wrote the script for Jumanji Welcome to the Jungle. Um, so, you know, yeah. yeah, I don't know. They're also like little things, right? Like, you know, they, they cure Sandman. And then he says, stay right here. And then immediately Electro, like, blasts where he's standing. 
apparently to no effect, but like it was like literally like like ten seconds later. I was like, really? Really like that was just like that was a little much for me. I um, like Sandman quite a lot. I mean, Sandman, you know, Spider-Man 3 I don't think is a great movie, but Sandman himself in that movie is a lot of fun and very good. Um, so I was kind of uh, I was kind of hoping a little bit more from Sandman, especially because he had an interest he has an interesting interaction with all of this, which is that he does just want to go home to his universe, right? He is not staring down death at the other end of it. He's going to go home to be a dad, right? Um, which I think is interesting because it makes him a it makes him a complicated character, like in in terms of maybe being a villain, right? Right. You know that that he is trying to stop this redemption stuff that that is trying to happen, um, because he just wants the bot the button on the box to be pressed. But you know, there's only so much time. It's only so much you can do. Yeah. With yeah. all of that. Yeah, I mean, like little things, like you know, like they leave the crocodile man in the, in the van instead of bringing him to, to Happy's apartment, which is like, because he didn't want to come up. Like, why, why yep. would you do that? Like, that sounds like a, that sounds like a mistake, right? Like it is. Of, there's like, I don't know. There's, there's a lot of little things, but you know, <sighs> Port Sandman uh, always crammed in with other villains. Yeah. I mean, movie Sandman is better. The, the, Regular Sandman, it kind of sucks, to be honest. He's just a small-time crook, that's it. Um, this, like, thing with his daughter or whatever is is invented for the movie. So, movie Sandman is kind of, like, more interesting than, like, any other version of Sandman. Yeah. Um, wh what did you think of Toby and, and uh, Garfield? Uh, it was really nice seeing them again. And I was a little depressed that they weren't different versions of themselves. What my hope was, was that we were going to see uh, Toby as sort of old man Spider-Man. Not old man Spider-Man, but like, you know. Peter B. Uh, Parker, like in, 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 like in Spider-Verse. Yeah, actually, that yeah, like a, an, an adult version of Peter, right? Because like something that was sort of unclear about this was like when each of them were plucked out of the the, the individual universes. But I was thinking that maybe they were going to do a version um, in the Marvel Comics universe. Uh, Peter actually take he um, he gets injured at some point where he just can't beat Spider-Man anymore. Like, he still has his Spider-Man powers, but he's just, like, too fucked up to really be a superhero anymore. And so he kind of, uh, like, he retires, he becomes a school teacher, and eventually he has a daughter with MJ, and his daughter becomes Spider-Girl, right? Um, and I thought they might do something like that, where, you know, he's eventually just, like, too... I thought they were alluding to that with the back thing, because I actually think it's that he broke his back that stopped mm. him from being able to be Spider-Man. Um... But no, that's that was just a that was just a bit, a really long, a really long bit. Uh, and then I thought, and then the the other thing you could have done with uh, Andrew Garfield in that one, which is the sort of middle period where Spider Man is a college student, right? He's out of high school, he's in college, and he's living on his own, but still doing kind of like the Spider Man thing. But like you know, a little bit more mature, a little bit more responsible. So you see sort of these three stages of Peter's life, right? High school, college, adulthood, essentially. Um, but that didn't happen. Yeah, you, you could, you so. could, they could be sequel bait. Like it could, because like, you know, Toby takes like a pretty big hit at the end of, uh, at the end of the movie. Um, 
I was actually kind of surprised. Like, I mean, I'm not that surprised it's Marvel, but they like kind of pulled the punches. Thought they were gonna kill Toby. I also um, thought they were gonna kill Toby. Um, I was already way out of the movie at that point, but I probably thought that would have been a good move. I, I, I like that they killed Aunt May. I think that was good in theory, even if the whole mechanics of it made me lose my fucking mind. Uh, <laughs> so you know, yeah, fair. Um, but yeah, no. So like, if they do a theoretical sequel where they pull someone else in from the universe that could be like peter peter like you know toby could be like i'm too old for the shit i'm sending you know sending in the clowns i'm sending in my i'm honestly my- you probably they probably could have done peter b parker uh because it's like you know what the fuck is jake johnson doing the guy that voices the character you, mm. you just put a spider-man outfit on him but he's like fat or whatever and it's the same voice and it would have been the spider-verse peter parker would i i if I would have done that, if it was up to me, right? Like I would have, I would have done that. But it would have been great if, the, like, fucking Nicholas Cage showed up as like Noir Spider. That would have been great, actually. That would have been. I would have like, lost awesome. my fucking mind if that happened. Um, yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah. Um, hey, and he even and he even had that that pig movie recently. It bring it with. Uh, Peter Porker. Um. <laughs> yeah, the other thing that, that sort of depressed me about this was J. Jonah Jameson, who is a character that I also really enjoy and I think is is a lot deeper than people think. Um, and I was hoping that there was going to be more about J. Jonah Jameson than that. Yeah. Um, he was a pretty superfluous presence uh, that didn't add anything or interact with anything in a way that I would say was like good or interesting. I mean, honestly, I don't know that you can really redeem this version of J. Jonah Jameson uh, in the same way. Like the thing that makes J. Jonah Jameson interesting in the comics is that he is actually pretty relatable and sympathetic, right? His thing about Spider-Man, you know, there's a comic where Peter sits down with, Peter gets fired, right? He mouths off to, to J. Jonah Jameson. Jameson fires him, right? And then later, Jameson shows up on Peter's, you know, like doorstep, right? And he says, you know what? I lost my temper and I should not have fired you. And that was fucked up of me, right? And I want you to, you know, like, and I and I want to apologize, right? And they have this whole conversation. And one of the things that Peter says is, why do you hate Spider-Man so much? And Jameson says, you know, my son was an astronaut, right? He was an astronaut, flies up into space, and he dies because there's a there's a thing. He later comes back. It's, it's a whole bunch of bullshit, obviously, but just for now, right? And he says, you know, to me, that's a hero, right? He gave his life for his country. You know, he worked so hard to become the kind of man that could step into the space shuttle, and he lost his life, right? And it burns me that there is some coward swinging around through the city with a mask on who can't even tell the public his, you know, who he is, right? And he didn't do anything. He just, he just is some freak who has, who got these powers out of nowhere, right? He didn't earn it or anything. And it, and it just bugs me that people look at that guy and they say, that's a hero, right? And my son is like dead or whatever. And like, obviously we, we would all quibble with that characterization events from like J. Jonah Jameson, but like, that's like a really relatable and understandable reason for him to be so anti-Spider-Man, so mean and negative towards Spider-Man, right? Right. Um, Uh, I don't uh, know that you could really get any of that across with Alex Jones, J. Jonah Jameson, right? But but I love that aspect of the character, and I think that that's, like, good, and I would have liked to see something towards Uh, that. Honestly, I was hoping we were going to get, like, classic haircut J. Jonah Jameson pulled into the universe being like, fuck you to 
to, to, to current universe, but we didn't. That blew my mind. That would be yeah. nuts. Holy shit. I didn't even think about that, but yeah. Yeah, because there's like, isn't there like an alternate universe J. Jonah Jameson who's like, like goes to bat for like either Spider-Man or Peter in like a way that like, you know, it's like he's like a, like, you know, I don't think he's like, I don't approve of what he's doing, but he's ultimately on the good side of things or something like that. I, that I happens gets, in Spider-Man. The, in the Spider-Man okay. 2003 movie, the the first place the Green Goblin does is he bursts into J. Jonah Jameson's office and holds him up by the neck. And he goes, the pictures of Spider-Man, where do they come from? And Jameson says, I don't know. They come they come through the mail. We, you know, we pay we pay to a P.O. box or whatever, right? Um, which I actually think is a perfect – this is the, the, the thing that I'm talking yeah. about, right? Like, at the end of the day, he is a guy with integrity, even if he has yeah. this shitty, yeah, you know, yeah. thing about Spider-Man. He is willing to protect Peter's life, and he is not a coward and is willing to, you know – I don't know, get killed by the fucking murderous Green Goblin in order to protect the source of, uh, you know, to protect one of the reporters in his newsroom, which I think is, it, that's good. That's a, that's a great J. Jomo Jameson moment, and there really wasn't anything like that in uh, in this one. Yeah, I and mean, just because, like, Jameson isn't really connected to Peter in any way, right? Yeah, like, and he, at least... he honestly really isn't even connected to the story, it seems yeah. like, outside of just being a, um, you know, a mouthpiece for... I mean, honestly, it, what it is is it's like, a, oh, it's the same actor that everybody loved as him the first time around, right? Like, yeah. That's basically it. I mean, that's um, true. There is no version of Jane Jones and Jameson that I think could be anything, anybody but uh, J.K. Simmons. Um, yeah. But, you know. Yeah. I, I wonder if, like, like, it seems like, like, we, we talked about how, like, they skipped over the Spider-Man origin story this time around. Like, is maybe that what this movie was supposed to be? Right, like the actual origin story, right? Because we get we get we get the speech, we get the like, you know, we get the you know a fresh start essentially, right? Like he doesn't know anybody. Um, uh, in one of our one of our group chats, someone said like, well, maybe he'll do Gwen Stacy at Empire State, right? And then maybe he can start working for Jameson, right, in the newsroom or whatever. Yeah, I mean, uh, it seems to suggest that the next thing is going to be Venom, because the, yeah, I you hated, know, I, the, you know what I I hated that fucking cock tease. Of a of a of a like trailer dropping carnage that turned into nothing in this movie. Also, um, I hated that because why the fuck was Eddie Brock even pulled over? He doesn't know who Spider Man is. What? How? Why yeah, would he no, come over in the first place? Like, <laughs> yeah, no, that's that that is a very good point. Like, um, yeah, you know, and I like I don't want to overthink this or whatever. But even then. Wouldn't the magic spell get all of Venom? Why would it right. leave behind this little drop of Venom goop in Mexico? Ah, and from like I from like a it. from like a Doyleist perspective, does this mean that like we're going to have a different Venom not played by Tom Hardy um, in, uh, in 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 the MCU, which is going to be like why? Oh my god, and we know that Venom is in the same cinematic universe as the Morbius movie, and it's just like... But that's also in the MCU Prime movie, because we got, we have um we have the Vulture in the preview. Oh my god, you're right. Yeah, he is in the trailer. I hate this, dude. I yeah. hate this so fucking much. Like, all of it. All of this is so dumb. Yeah, I'm, going to because, be so, like, I'm gonna be so mad if it's just Tom Hardy, but a different version of Tom Hardy. Like maybe they do that so he can be a villain and not like a pseudo hero or whatever. Like <laughs> that's what they're gonna do. Yeah, they're I gonna have Edgar, we're gonna no, have Venom you know go way home. And they're gonna bring back fucking Topher Grace. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would act 
actually be pretty great, honestly. I actually really like Topher Grace as Eddie Brock. Uh, I think that, like I said, I think Spider-Man 3 is bad. Um, but the casting of Topher Grace as Venom Brock, or Venom Brock, Eddie Brock, actually does feel kind of on point. Because Eddie Brock is supposed to sort of be like a trumped-up loser or whatever. And Topher Grace really, like, gets that across of just this, like, dweeb who thinks he's a fucking, you know, like, alpha male. <laughs> I I haven't watched in a while, but someone posted a clip on Twitter that was like, so Eddie Brock hears that he should like go to church to like work out his problems. And he goes to church and prays to God to kill, to kill, uh, you know, Peter Parker, not (laughs) Spider-Man, to kill Peter Parker. Uh, That's true. Yeah. Oh, man. Uh, What a fucking, (sighs) fucking Morbius. Morbius looks like it's going to be terrible, and I'm I'm excited for it to be terrible. Like, oh I'm yeah, so I am good. unexcited. I am not super excited to see to see Morbius. I think it might be one that I that I end up skipping. But then, how are we going to talk about it in the podcast, buddy? Oh my god, don't do this to me, man! <laughs> don't ruin don't ruin my life like this. Fuck. Ah. <laughs> uh. All right, I think we've 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 uh, we've made up for lost time, as it were. Yep. Um. Did you have anything you want to talk about before your week before week and we got out of here? Oh, God. Do I have anything else I want to talk about uh, for my week? No. I mean, it's just to give people a preview of what we're, what, what we're going to be like coming up. We did finally get AOTC as a guild. So in the next couple of uh, weeks, we'll be doing our 9.1 you know, big patch retrospective like we did for Shadowlands after we got AOTC Denathrius. Um, and uh, what, else, what else do we have coming up? Uh, the oh, the derpies! Yeah, so we're also going to do the derpies, which I'm honestly unironically excited for. One of the things that I liked about the Matrix Four um, in general is it sort of it kind of created this this like it reminds me of these other movies that also came out in 2021. Those being um, uh, the first of all the Snyder Cut, second of all the Many Saints of Newark, and F9. Which sort of creates this like quad quadrilogy, I guess, of um, movies where some creator like comes back and asserts creative control over their like you know like over their sort of franchise or whatever. That's that which was which is interesting, and I think it makes for I don't know just like something interesting to talk about in the derpies uh, as a preview of what's to come. George Lucas for Star Wars Ten, yeah. I mean, I said the other day, I was in voice with somebody, and we were, like, talking about, we were talking about some stuff, and I said how my favorite, my favorite movie of 2021, um, uh, my favorite movie of 2021 was the, was the Matrix 4 trailer, right? Um, and, or I actually, I was like, oh, the movie I was most excited to see was Matrix 4. I felt like there was nothing else like it, right? There was no other movies that that possibly were going to, to hit me this way. And then I was really excited because Dune came out and was that movie, right? Um, so I just like, man, I don't know. I don't, I don't even have, I, I'm rambling. What else? Do you have anything else did you want to talk about? <laughs> I mean, I also, I, I watched uh, Midnight Run um, and Hunt for the Wilder People, which or uh, Midnight Ring goes off of Netflix on the 31st. Um, I thought it was super fun. Um, it's like Robert De Niro is trying to, like, get, like, a guy who, like, ripped off the mob back to L.A. Um, yeah, that's a famous uh, movie, right? That's yes, one of those. Yeah, yeah. I, I actually have never seen that one, but it's one of those ones that... I saw a lot of movies like this in college, actually, which were these films that were, like, famous 
and got referenced a lot, but like I just like missed or whatever. I mean, I think it's super fun. Like, it's not. It's is it the greatest movie of all time? No, but like, it's on Netflix until December thirty first. So I would Honestly, recommend seeing it. I should probably watch it. I've been going back and watching a lot of these, like just like random, you know, like random movies that not that I've necessarily never seen before, but just like I don't know movies that I wanted to watch. Uh, yeah. For whatever reason. So so part of this too was like this was like the post Christmas movie that I can watch with the family that mm-hmm. like you know like we like. My mom was like, "Do you guys want to watch the Ricky Ricardo, uh, Ricky Ricardo, Lucille Ball biopic?" And um, beyond being rated poorly, it was like, "Dad's not gonna want to watch this, right?" But like, "Hunt for the Wilder People" was good for all four of us. Uh, Midnight Run was good for Dad. Um, and it's like actiony, um, and so you know, in those contexts, I, th- I think they're fine on their own too. Like, I really enjoyed Hunt for the Wilder People; that was mm. really touching. Um, but I think in uh, both of those, uh, or I, I think they are movies with a little bit wider appeal, so you don't have to worry about that aspect as much. Okay. Um, yeah. Well, very cool. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that's everything I have. Um, if you'd uh, like to uh, email us about any of your thoughts, uh, you can email us some Derp's Play Games at gmail.com or podcast at com. You can follow us at twitch.tv slash games where these go out live, and we, we, we field... Um, live comments from the listeners and viewers. Thank you, Lou and Arahe, for being loyal viewers. Um, uh, and uh, all the other stuff. Rate, review us, all that good stuff. Um, Patreon, YouTube. Um, but you have anything you want to promote? I have nothing else that I'm looking to promote. Well, in that case, until next time, dear listeners. Until next time, loyal listeners.